Good morning, Southwood family. It's great to be with you. I know many of you, many of you I don't know, I think we're heading into the 10th year uh, here at Southwood. That's such an incredible, incredible blessing, a great thing to celebrate. Uh, my name is Pat Coyle. I serve on our kind of all campuses staff um, uh, in human resources, kind of taking care of our staff. And uh, we worship, my family and I worship at the Anderson campus, and my wife Jeannie, and my three kids. Uh, for those of y'all who know my kids, uh, Katie will graduate from Texas A&M in December. If you can, yeah, <laughs> it's a whoop, but for dad, it's kind of a, I can't believe, <laughs> I can't believe this is upon us. My son is going to be a sophomore, and my daughter's going to be a junior uh, in high school. Uh, great to be with you this morning. Great to be here together at the end of this um, this series. By the way, I also serve as missionary care pastor, and I want to encourage you to just jump on what Guff said in the announcements about the potluck at Anderson today. Uh, please, when you see these potlucks in the in the bulletin, don't look at that as an Anderson or Southwood thing. We're going to do some more here, but a, a time for the whole church to get together and encourage and just celebrate what God's doing around the world. I had the privilege of visiting the Hinton family this summer in Berlin and seeing their work firsthand, and uh, you'll be blessed to come and hear that. And as Guff said, even if you didn't bring food uh, please come anyway. I think there'll be plenty. God kind of does the loaves and the fishes thing every time we do those potlucks anyway. So come and join us for that. So this summer, we've been bouncing all over the Old Testament. And um, in the interest of time, uh, I think that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll spare you a, a, a big thorough review of the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the life of Jeremiah and particularly one passage from Jeremiah's uh, 57 chapters of words, uh, but uh, we're going to kind of look into his heart and his secret as what is, he's known as the weeping prophet. We're going to talk about that in a second. And how could the weeping prophet have a, a, a successful, uh, kind of a joyful life secret? And, and that's what we're going to look at uh, from one, one particular passage of his. We've got to kind of put Jeremiah and the prophets in the timeline. And I'm not going to go over this in detail, but if you, if you have studied the Old Testament or if you kind of followed along this summer, you can kind of see the flow uh, through the creation and the patriarchs and the exodus and the giving of the law. Uh, the time of the judges and the kings, uh, the covenants that God made with his people demonstrating he was a faithful covenant-keeping God, uh, but the people were not faithful. And it was a persistent problem of idolatry throughout, uh, throughout that timeline, especially in the, in the time of the kings, uh, worshiping other gods and not worshiping the one true God. But even in the midst of judgment upon that idolatry in the season of the prophets, uh, God gave the new covenant. And that's what I was just in my prayer so overwhelmed with a moment ago, the looking forward to the coming of Christ and the gospel that we live today. And so the new covenant is given actually partially in the writings of Jeremiah. And we'll see that in just a moment. Uh, and then there was a period of silence, and then uh, our Lord Jesus comes on the scene. So that's a that's the really brief timeline. There it is in a, in an actual timeline fashion, and uh, you see that um, the the idolatry of the people God had uh, brought judgment upon them. He divided the kingdom into two uh, kingdoms, and the northern kingdom is 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 put into exile with Assyria. Uh, and just as Judah, Judah has this uh, southern kingdom of Judah has a revival period about right in here, and then uh, that's that's pretty much the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. But he ministers on through uh, the exile. So we are in that post uh, post Davidic post divided kingdom uh, season, and uh, there's that brief reform under Josiah, who was a good king. Uh, the people of Judah and future kings revealed, though, that they never did completely turn back to Jehovah God, and apostasy and idolatry again run rampant, 
and God speaks out uh, through the prophets, and particularly through the prophet Jeremiah. I said uh, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. There's a, an artist's rendering of, 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 our, of our main character today. His calling uh, was in the 500s BC at the time of Josiah's reign. Uh, he's, he's called the weeping prophet for many reasons. He was commanded, he was commanded not to marry. He was given a stern message of judgment uh, pretty much throughout his, uh, his uh, time as a prophet. He was strongly opposed. He was forbidden to go to the temple, the, the place of worship. Uh, he was beaten. He was imprisoned. Uh, a tough life. You understand why he's known as the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. Um, he was a reluctant prophet. He had a hesitancy toward his call. You see that in chapter 1, verse 6 of, of the book of Jeremiah. More than once, he was ready to quit and, and, and leave his ministry. But his career lasted more than 40 years, beginning with Josiah, as I said, and continuing through uh, the final kings of Judah until Nebuchadnezzar's taking of Jerusalem, the Babylonian exile. Uh, if you know the stories uh, there of Daniel in particular, and again, most of those words were characterized by great, great hardship, great difficulty. He was given the option to go to Babylon or stay in Jerusalem, and he chose to stay in Jerusalem, but he wasn't even given the choice to do that. It was ultimately, uh, he was taken to Egypt where he prophesied a few more years, and then he, he died in Egypt away from his homeland and his people. So why is it so important if we're going to look at the words of Jeremiah to understand his background and his circumstances well, first of all, he was a prophet, and uh, Jeremiah and his colleagues delivered difficult words to God's people in that season of idolatry, uh, God's hatred and his judgment upon idolatry among his people. And we may think, well, we don't, we don't have idolatry today, but I think you might recall in the, in the Every Knee series not all that long ago, we talked about the idolatry in our lives. Our, our idols may not be uh, golden calves on shelves or in temples, but we have things uh, that we idolize, things that we consider more important than God. We, we need to hear words that lead us to crush our idols. Our idols can be material, success, security, in the midst of all of uh, his ministry, Jeremiah and his colleagues also, though, delivered words of great comfort and great encouragement. And for Jeremiah personally, his own life was tough. His words don't come out of a sunshine and roses and bunnies and happy little uh, scenes kind of, a, kind of a life. So his words speak for us into all kinds of circumstances. Even circumstances of great difficulty and trial. Thinking of the testimony of the, of the people in Honduras and the, the joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. We have difficulties in our lives uh, for, for many reasons. We have difficulties in our lives because of just evil and brokenness in the world. We, we hear difficult news in the news today constantly. School shootings and difficult things to understand. Evil in our world. The words of the prophet Jeremiah speak into those kind of circumstances, those kind of difficult circumstances. They speak into the difficulty uh, uh, caused by our own bad and sinful choices. God is merciful. Even when we are rebellious and sinful, if we repent, he has words of comfort. Think of the, the story of the prodigal son and the father uh, embracing the wayward son. His words speak into the difficulty that's caused by others' actions towards us, just, just, just mistreatment um, uh, on behalf of others, and the difficulty that just can't be explained. Accidents, illnesses, 
Many of you know I, I have an older brother who passed away unexplainably in an in a, in a ATV accident. Just tragically, one day, right around Christmas time, he was gone. That, that launched a very difficult season in my life, uh, a season where I struggled with depression, I struggled with anxiety, and uh, this passage that we're going to look at today in Jeremiah 17 uh, was one of the, the, the things that just spoke out to me in that time and why I'm so excited uh, to be able to share it with you today. So in the little window of Jeremiah's words that we're going to look at today, we're going to have the privilege of seeing the goodness of the Lord, even in the midst of circumstances that we may have created or we may not have created. In doing that, we get a glimpse of the key to the kind of life that God desires for us. I think we find that key to life most often when we're in difficulty, not when everything is going well. God's desire for us is not a constantly blessed life with abundance in every in circumstantial abundance, with wealth and riches and good health. There are difficulties. We're not constantly blessed with those kind of things. But we can be abundantly steadfast and fruitful and even joyful in the midst of the most difficult circumstances that life has to offer because we can fully trust in our faithful covenant-keeping God at all times in all circumstances. And that kind of deep, embedded, lasting, unwavering trust or dependence, the kind of thing that we sang about today, is Jeremiah's secret behind his ability to persevere and even thrive in the context of a life that was filled with weeping. And if you're wondering, just from one passage that we're going to look at, why I say this is a secret in Jeremiah's life, consider some other famous, well-known passages from Jeremiah's life that accentuate this. Um, you may not know that you know uh, Lamentations 3. Uh, well, here, let's go there. Lamentations three nineteen through 26. But you probably know Lamentations three twenty two and 23. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, say it out loud, His mercies... Never come to an end. They are new. Great is his faithfulness. You know those words. Those are the words of the prophet Jeremiah. In verse 19, just before that, Jeremiah recounts his troubles, his weepings. He recounts all these difficult things. And he says, this I call to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That passage focuses on the covenant-keeping, faithful uh, love, the, the, the faithful love of God, the faithfulness of God. We translate it faithfulness. It's such a, a deeper word, his hesed. Uh, he, Jeremiah knew that his hesed would remain faithful even in spite of the disobedience of his people. And, and though, the, 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 though the disobedience uh, unrepented of would result in painful consequences, consequences and judgment to the people, yet the steadfastness of God's love would even undergird the punishment and would await his people when they repented. It's also, uh, uh, you see a Jeremiah's secret in the often quoted Jeremiah 29, 11, for, the, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. Not, yeah. So you know uh, this, this, this idea, this, this underlying confidence in the goodness of God toward his people. And then I mentioned a minute ago uh, in Jeremiah 31, I mentioned a minute ago that Jeremiah was one of the prophets who previewed the new covenant. For us, this idea still in the Old Testament context under law that this new covenant of God would come along where God would do a new thing in the hearts of his people, looking forward to what Christ would do for us on the cross. 
The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Looking from the Old Testament context into what we understand as the gospel of Jesus Christ today was was virtually impossible for the people to understand. But we have the blessing of living in that time now where that is true. God himself showing his mercy and his power over sin by cleansing and remaking and filling his people's hearts through his Messiah and through the Holy Spirit coming to live in our lives. Let me just say for y'all today, if there's someone here who doesn't understand what I'm talking about, that's new to you, that, that, that what Jesus did on the cross to, to die for my sins and then, and then to rise again and defeat death and hell once and for all, that, that that victory over sin could be mine simply by faith in what Jesus did on that cross. It's true. And not only that, he sends his spirit to live inside of you and to enable obedient and abundant living through his own presence in our lives. It's a, it's a miracle. It's a beautiful thing forecast from the time of Jeremiah to this day. If you haven't heard that truth before, now that's your application today is look to Jesus, put your trust in him and experience that for yourself. But the, that hope of Jeremiah, that hopefulness that we see in all these, this brief review of his writings, that trust firmly invested in this God, this faithful, trustworthy God is the bedrock of the passage that we want to look at today. And that's Jeremiah 17, beginning in verse 5. So you can go ahead and turn there. That was a lot of intro. But uh, we kind of moved through the passage pretty quickly. This is not a difficult or, or obscure passage of Scripture. It's, it's very simple and very beautiful, very profound. And uh, in my life, very motivational. I pray that it will be for you as well. So let's read um, 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So we're going to look at that passage in two parts. First, the curse of misplaced trust and the blessing of True trust. There's no other way to put it. Trust in the Lord is true trust. So, in verses 5 and 6, we see the curse of misplaced trust and that idea of the tree in the desert. So, the curse is proclaimed in verse 5. The person's, this person's trust is in humanity and not in God. Trust in humanity can take a myriad of forms, from, from actual idolatry to just putting too much faith in an individual or too much faith in this individual yourself, Right? The trust is in humanity. There's two nouns there for humanity or, or mankind. Uh, the, the first noun, mighty, is, is the noun used of a mighty man, a, like a warrior, the kind of person you would think you would go to depend on if you're depending on a person. The winner, right? The second noun is a more general mankind uh, flesh. The, the idea there is there's, there's no, 
nothing in the, in the scope of humanity that is trustworthy. And to trust in the spectrum of humanity uh, to rely on fleshly strength is cursed. And the heart by this kind of trust is deceived. The heart is turned away from the Lord, which is the opposite of trust in the Lord, which is the goal of, of the passage. And the, then the verses, or the, the curse rather, is illustrated uh, in verse 6 by that shrub in the desert. And there it is in the, uh, in the photograph. It's the desert juniper, and that was a, a common uh, tree or, or plant or shrub at the, at the time in the ancient Near East. Uh, it's, we see it in our deserts here as well, this kind of a thing. Uh, there it is. Is that who you want to be? <laughs> as you look at that, it's described as without source. No water, without hope, without joy, and without companionship, utterly alone. The, the, the person who continually puts their trust in man and the, the, themselves or the things of humankind uh, ends up, Jeremiah says, this way. But there's a beautiful contrast in verses 7 and 8. The blessing of true trust, there's the best illustration I could find uh, of, of what's described in verse 8. But, but looking at, at verse 7, the blessing uh, is described, it's proclaimed. This is the person who trusts in the Lord, the Lord who alone is trustworthy, y'all. If there's one being in the universe who is truly trustworthy, it's our God. The, the literal translation there, uh, who, who trusts in Yahweh and Yahweh is his trust. Now, there's a lot of different English versions, and when you look at the different English versions, I paused when I read it to, for, for emphasis on the thing that I wanted you to notice. It. Basically, there's two phrases there that sound like, how blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord. Uh, sometimes in Hebrew, there's a, there's a couplet, there's a repetition in order to emphasize. It's kind of like good, better, best. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on here because the words change. And the idea uh, is uh, the person... Uh, trusts in the Lord, and many of us would say, I trust in the Lord. I, I, I trust in the Lord. Uh, but then he said, whose trust is the Lord, is the second phrase. Would we be able to say, my concept of trust is defined by God? It's totally, totally invested, uh, not, not expressing trust, but investing trust in God. Two-layer trust, deep trust. It's as if trust in my life is defined by God himself. You, you see, that's deeper. And the implication is that this person's heart is completely God's and no one else's. There is no trust in any form or facet of mankind, of humankind. There is trust in God. God is this person's trust. The blessing is described in verse 8 like a tree. A tree is a symbol of permanence and strength and fruitfulness throughout Old Testament literature. It says it's firmly planted. That's an unusual Hebrew word. It's like locked into. Okay, so locked into a vibrant, constant source which supplies constantly and never fails. Again, picture the tree in the desert and the contrast there between the two. No fear. If fear is persistent, trust is inconsistent or misplaced. No fear. Uh, when the drought comes, no fear. It's healthy, it's alive, it's lush, it's unanxious, secure, even joyful. 
whatever the circumstances are around it, because it indicates drought comes. Okay, it doesn't say if drought comes, it's when drought comes. When difficult times come, this tree is standing tall and bearing fruit, unceasingly fruitful, reproducing itself and its benefits over and over. In our context, that's into the lives of others when we're living in that kind of trust. Do you sense the peace? Do you sense the steadfastness, the pleasantness of that imagery as Jeremiah has has painted it for us? Don't you want that? Do you experience it? Are times good? Are times difficult right now? And which tree are you in the midst of those circumstances? And the answer has everything to do, apparently, with where your trust is being placed. Where is your trust being invested? Now, Jeremiah goes actually a little deeper for us in verses 9 through 14. Let's read uh, 9 through 14. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. As a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him. In the end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are my praise. So in 9 through 14, I think uh, Jeremiah is kind of applying the concept in some things that seem rather random. And I think as you walk, as we walk through it together, you'll see the, you'll see the repetition of the pattern. And, and in verses 9 through 11, I think we see the ugly, the ugliness of misplaced trust, that trust in humankind, the idea from verses 5 and 6. And verse 9 says, the human heart cannot at all be trusted, not at all, yet we flock to it. Our first answer is our own strength or the strength of someone around us when we encounter difficult times. But that human heart that we're depending on is deceitful. It's described as deceitful. It's described as desperately sick. Uh, the, the better translation of the word would be gravely ill or terminal. Dying, useless, incurable. And it's described as not understandable except to the Lord. The Lord understands the heart. We don't. Verse 10, only the Lord is able to search and test and understand the human heart and then deal with mankind according to mankind's ways and deeds. We are not. God is. We are not. It's not a heart that we can depend on. And in verse 11, there's an example again, another illustration uh, from nature, and it's the uh, egg stealer. Uh, It's actually, it says partridge in a lot of the English translations. Uh, Partridges did not, in that context, steal eggs. There's a a translation there that's uh, more likely the, um, the sand grouse, okay? The sand grouse was an egg stealer not to eat the eggs and benefit in that way, uh, but to deceitfully hatch the thing it did not lay. So deceitfulness, again, you see, is the illustration of the human heart. So this is a description of the unjust person who gains fortune by unjust ways, who gains good fortune for themselves by unjust ways. They rely on scheming, inadequate resources. They trust in mankind. They trust in human means. And in life, it catches up to them. 
in negative ways. And in eternity, they're described as the worst kind of fool. Because they've reached the end of this life, the afterlife, with nothing of value to show for their life. All they've produced is that which they've stolen. There's a description of the, the unreliability and the, uh, the, 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 the deceitfulness of the human heart. Not a thing that we're to trust in. And then we go to the contrast again in verses 12 through 14. The beauty of trust in the Lord. The beauty of true trust. And the focus here is on God. So verses 12 and 13. The Lord is entirely trustworthy. His throne is on high. He's sovereign over all. His throne is from the beginning. He's everlasting. He's eternal. He is secure and a place of security. My sanctuary, my sanctuary, your sanctuary is the throne of this God. He's the hope of his people. He judges rightly. Those who forsake, who don't trust in him, find themselves in shame. Their names are written in dust, it says. There's no lasting legacy. It's blown away as if your name is written in the dust and that's your existence. The wind blows and and there's nothing left. But he judges rightly in that. He's the fountain of living water. He's the Lord. As we go through these last uh, few verses and we prepare ourselves as we head towards the end of our time together, I'm going to leave you, if you're a note taker, I'm going to leave you some applications. And hopefully if you're not a note taker, you can just remember these things. Things that we see in this passage that I think cement this, uh, this uh, the, the, enables us to cement this kind of trust in the Lord in our lives. And the first application from that, verses 12 and 13, that description of who, who God is, is this. I would encourage you, uh, this again is from my own experience, from my own walk, and the time that this passage spoke uh, to me. If you think of this series that Blake uh, did uh, not all that long ago, he's just done it at Anderson again, uh, on hope in difficult times. These are some of those same ideas that were in his applications. From this passage, focusing on the Lord, his trustworthiness, meditate on those things that put your focus on the godness of God. That's a, that's a phrase I'm, I'm stealing. Uh, my wife is a, a, a fan of Beth Moore. I, I love so much of her teaching too. And uh, there was a time we were listening to something together and she talked about focusing on the godness of God. I thought it's just such a great way to, uh, to, 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 to get that, to get a hold of that because not... Not all of our thoughts, not many of our thoughts will focus on who God is. Thoughts like we just read from this passage. But when we meditate, when we pray, when we look for scriptures, we put thoughts and things into our lives that focus on all that God is. Where does our focus go to? Our own problems? No, his victory over our problems. So, so meditating, centering your heart on the godness of God is just a, a great, great means uh, to, to solidify your trust in him. The morning, I shared this message at, uh, at Anderson uh, in May, and the morning that I was going to, um, to share it, I came across this. Uh, if you don't know Ruth Myers, um, she was the uh, 31 Days of Praise. A lot of times when you the Christian bookstore or on Christian websites, you'll see 31 Days of Praise kind of there near checkout, you know, things to, uh, little, little books. Uh, Ruth Myers uh, apparently just spent her life just bathing in Scripture. And, and, and paying attention to it and categorizing it by subjects and putting it in so that when she wrote these books, uh, it's, just, it's just scripture 
uh, speaking to you and woven to, uh, together in a way that speaks. And um, she's meditating on, on Psalm 45. This particular book is a satisfied heart. They're all out of print, but if you go to Amazon and Google, uh, or if you Google Ruth Meyer, go to Amazon or one of the other book sites, uh, you can find them. Uh, great books on focusing on the godness of God. She's fo- focusing on Psalm 45. And it's just an idea of how to turn praise passages into your focus on the godness of God. Um, verse 6 of Psalm 45 continues, A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. His scepter of righteousness. His is a scepter of righteousness. Because the golden scepter with which he rules is right and just. We can depend, we can trust in him. Never to make a mistake with our lives. We can count on his decrees and decisions to be always wise, always best. The psalm continues, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Our king is righteous through and through. His love for us is altogether a righteous love. We need never suspect any ulterior motives in his dealings with us. He will never wrong us. He will never lie to us. He'll never do anything that we cannot admire. So we can give ourselves totally to loving him and depending the life of trust, depending on him with all the corruption in the world in places high and low, and she had no idea when she wrote this about corruption in places high and low. Um, we find few people we can depend on unreservedly, but God is totally dependable. There will never be any corruption in his government. What a sense of peace this truth gives. God is so perfectly the kind of ruler we need. When you focus on the godness of God, your thoughts turn to thoughts like that. How trustworthy, how dependable he is. And it's a Almost like a brainwashing in a, in a godly sort of a sense. Uh, an overcoming of your thoughts and your temptations to trust in mankind with a reassurance of how dependable and how valid is trust in God. So the passage goes on. Verse 14, uh, we see that trust in God means that we can go to him and are rewarded with his good answers. Now the passage there is, uh, that's the heal me and I will be healed. That's a tough one. But I want you to note the wording. To say, heal me, O Lord, is to trust in who? It's to trust in the Lord. So, you, so, the, so Jeremiah is putting his trust in the Lord and even saying that. Uh, seek his healing, basically, and he heals. Whew, look out, Pat. You're, you're, you're treading on, <laughs> on difficult ground here for us evangelicals, huh? Okay. Seek his salvation, and he saves. Yes, we, we believe that. That, that healing part of it, the, the, the interpretation is tricky. And I'm not talking about a health and wealth. God guarantees you absolute good health all the time kind of an interpretation. Um, there's a couple of ways that you could interpret it. You could say, uh, if and when he heals me, I will be healed. That's true. It's kind of unsatisfying, I think, for the, for it doesn't seem to exactly say what's being said here. But think about it this way. Healing is not always... As, as a person who, who trusts in God, healing is not always uh, in the earthly immediate sense. We talked a minute ago how when drought comes, drought and difficulty comes as a part of our lives, uh, including illness. But for God's people, his healing is, is always for us, either via abundant life in the present, his presence and his power during those difficult times to power us, enable us and walk us through it if we will trust in him. And in that eternal sense, 
as a believer in Christ, that eternal glory in him when we will be perfect and we will be perfectly healed. Uh, eternal glory with him and a perfect realization of both our salvation and our healing. He does come through. There's a story. I'm looking at the time. Um, there's a story early in my ministry here at Grace. Uh, there was a, uh, a, an international student family, graduate students, uh, not, not American um, who uh, the wife, they had a young son, the wife was finishing her um, uh, PhD, had gotten a good job in another town. Uh, the husband was going to continue here for a little bit. They were going to commute back and forth. They were establishing a home in the other town, and there was an accident, and the young wife was killed. And uh, we received a phone call through our international student ministry. Uh, the husband, not, not, not a believer in Christ, uh, to our knowledge, at all, and uh, yet we live in America. We want a church. We want to do. We want. It, we want a funeral. We want to do it this way. And okay, Lord, we'll do it. You know, we'll, we'll walk through it. So uh, I was called on, and I'm beginning to think through. What am I going to say? How am I? I can't explain this to myself. How can How can I explain this to other people? Considering too, as an audience, by the time the day for the funeral came, of of uh, university colleagues as well as business colleagues, and the new job, the grieving husband, the grieving son. And I had no idea what to do. <laughs> I was wrestling up to the day of with the Lord is what to say, what to do. And I looked down and the, the funeral home had prepared a little folio. And often on those little folios, they put the words of Psalm 23. And just sitting there, I began to read the words of Psalm 23. And there's, I think we were, we were all in Psalm 23 a couple of weeks ago, I think, when, uh, when Kyle was here. The, the thing that struck me as I read Psalm 23 in that context was, Psalm 23's message, what David was saying to us through that psalm is, if you will trust him as that shepherd, as that provider, he will show himself trustworthy. Now, by contrast, if you don't trust him, you may or may not see his trustworthiness. But if you will trust him, he will show himself trustworthy in those ways that are described in the psalm. And that was the, that was the message that God gave me. And I stood there and I, I shared that message and... and uh, just trying to say, I don't understand, you don't understand, but I guarantee you his word is true. If you trust him, he will show himself trustworthy. Uh, in time, uh, after that time, uh, the husband and the son began to engage at the church, began to grow, trusted Christ, began to grow in their faith. I don't know where they are now. I don't know the rest of their story. They've moved on. We found out that the wife had actually engaged in a Bible study, had trusted the Lord, had begun to pray for the salvation of her husband and son. Not saying, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying we trusted in the Lord and we saw a story of his trustworthiness that even the, even the grieving husband and the grieving child uh, affirmed. That kind of trust is difficult. And I just point you to Mark 9, where the young, uh, uh, the young father is wrestling with uh, the, the demon possession of his son. And, and he says to Jesus, he says, Lord, I believe... And then what does he say? Help me in my unbelief. So my second application is if you're struggling with trust, if you're struggling with difficulty, even knowing the truths of God's word that we've been talking about, ask him for trust. He's the source of it. He's the, he's the object of our trust. He's also the source of our trust. Ask him, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Cry out to him. We're going to end in a, a song of worship here just to kind of cap, cap this together. Where's Trey? Y'all can come on up, wherever you are. There we go. All right. Um, Last thing. Uh, 
Verse 14, the last phrase of verse 14, for you are my praise. Trust in him compels us to praise him. He says, not only I praise you, but he says, God, you are my praise, just like God is his trust, that depth of understanding of it. God is the source of our praise, and he's the object of our praise. He's the alpha and the omega of our, of our praise. And the last application, you know, we said meditate on those things that focus your attention on the godness of God. Uh, ask him for the ability to trust when you're struggling with trust. And then finally, practice praise and thanksgiving. When we recite our thanksgivings, we recite our contentedness in who God is for us. When we recite his praises, again, we're focusing back on the godness of God and we're proclaiming our trust in him. So we're going to end in a song of praise, and that's going to be our final application uh, together today. And this song came from our worship team. Uh, and I don't know if y'all have done it here before or not, but uh, back in May, a member of our worship team was going through a really, really difficult time. Uh, Sarah Davidson, and she was able to share this song with us as an application, a, a song of trust in the midst of difficult circumstances. God's moved very mightily uh, in her life and her health. And uh, so I wanted to just come again together and end with this song. This will be our last, uh, this will be our amen. So uh, y'all lead us.